everyone, and welcome into the Athletic Fantasy Baseball Podcast. It's Friday, August 28th. I am Michael Beller. No Derek Van Riper today. DVR on a much-deserved, well-needed, well-earned uh, vacation here this weekend. So it'll just be me with our guest today. We've got a great guest if you're listening to this show, you almost certainly follow all of his work. It is Paul Sporer. Of course, you can catch him over at Fangraphs. Does a ton of writing there for Fangraphs, for Rotographs, and also host of the Sleeper in the Bust podcast. Paul, thanks for joining me today. How you doing? Michael, I'm doing well. Thank you so much for having me on. Yeah, for sure. It's, uh, it's, it's great to have you on here a couple of days before the trade deadline, as we're going to talk about, uh, spend a lot of our time talking about. I would be remiss if we didn't, of course, mention uh, the things that didn't take place on Thursday before we get started. I've already talked about this a few times on some of our baseball shows, so don't need to dive too deep into it. But seven more games postponed on Thursday uh, as the players use their platform, use the voice, use the power that they have uh, when we all tune in to watch baseball and they don't play making powerful statements about things that are and aren't happening uh, in this country. So hats off once again to the players for deciding that there are things that are bigger than baseball, that they are ready to put themselves out there and stand for. Um, Paul, make the transition to uh, the things that are happening on the field and things that are happening in front offices across the league. Trade deadline looming on Monday. You've got a uh, column up on Fangraphs right now l- outlining some of the trade deadline candidates this season. And the first guy who jumped out at me uh, was Gregory Polanco. The main reason he jumped out at me was because I filled in for DVR on Rates and Barrels on yesterday. And uh, Eno Saris and I were talking about some potential both buy-high candidates, guys who we would be comfortable going after even if we know they're at their peak, and also buy low candidates, and Eno mentioned Gregory Polanco as someone who could be a buy low candidate. I see the argument for the Pirates making a move on him, obviously, this season. Um, from a fantasy perspective, A, do you think he's a buy low sort of player? And B, would you, where would you like to see him traded if he does end up getting moved? I've always been a huge fan of Gregory Polanco, been kind of rooting for him throughout his entire career as somebody who, you know, I feel like could have been. At his peak, like a 30-10 type of guy. Like, he, he was starting to develop that kind of power. We've seen a couple 20 homer seasons, 22 and 23. In fact, he had 17 and 12 stolen bases in those. So maybe I'm selling him short on the 30-10, like, you know, 30-20 maybe uh, at his best. This year, he's actually smacking the ball quite a bit. His hard hit rate is through the roof, one of the best in the league. However, it goes with a 43% strikeout rate right now. So he's not making that much contact. So there's that push-pull there of like, it's great when he is making contact, but how are you making so little contact? It, it, it's it's kind of bizarre, right? That he can make that strong of contact when he does hit the ball, but yet he seems lost in nearly half of his plate appearances with, with, with the uh, strikeouts because it also comes with a 22% swinging strike rate. So this strikeout rate is born of a lot of swing and miss. And, and that definitely presents a problem. I think anything in like, you know, once you're in the double digits swing, swing strike rate, 10 to 14, 15 is okay as a power guy. Once you start going above 15% on the swing strike rate, that's pretty bad. And he's at 22%. So I've rooted for him, like I said, but injuries have derailed him time and time again. In fact, even this year, I think he's missed time. He only has uh, 21 games and I believe they have 32. To play. I'm not entirely sure uh, what Pittsburgh's record is. I could see him as a buy low for a ball club 
because, you know, he's still just 28. He's healthy right now. And he does have that that quality uh, hard contact rate. As far as fantasy goes, though, I don't know if he's going to turn it around enough to to be completely useful because of that strikeout rate. And I don't know if you can take on the bad batting average. He's hitting 121. I will say one thing, though. A lot of bad batting averages out there in the fantasy landscape. Mm-hmm. Michael, I don't know how yours have been, but I have teams that are literally in first place while being dead last in batting average. And I don't think I've ever seen that. And, you know, they're dead last with like a 230 team average. And they're like not that far from the top or, or not, not necessarily the very top, but say 245 would turn that team into like a third place batting average team. Like that's how tight and bad batting averages are this year. So I don't know about getting him for fantasy for Gregory Polanco, but I do think a team like Cleveland should be particularly interested here because Polanco's owed 12 mil next year, which is not bad. You can be a pretty mediocre player and quote-unquote earn $12 million in the majors. Uh, health would be the only thing that would completely derail that. And we know Cleveland's pretty cheap, but I think even a $12 million player like Gregory Polanco uh, for their outfield that has been, I mean, straight up bad and, yes. and got worse. The one piece I thought was going to be great for them was Mercado. I, I had Oscar Mercado See. dead wrong. like He got sent out because he was performing so poorly. So I think a team like... Uh, Cleveland should be interested in Gregory Polanco if Pittsburgh's looking to deal. You know, there was a rumor about like Chad Cool being available from Pittsburgh, which kind of surprised me because uh, I don't think they should necessarily trade him. But if they are open to trading guys like that, then I would imagine that Polanco would be open to being dealt too. And I can't imagine he costs nearly as much as he would have, say, I don't know, you know, after one of those 20 homer seasons that I talked about earlier. So, yeah, I think Cleveland's a really good fit. Uh, they need outfield, and they would have them for more than just this year because, again, their reluctance to spend makes me think they wouldn't want just a rental. I mean, that team has needed outfielders for forever, mm-hmm. so I, I would have to imagine that they would that they would love to get their hands on him and hope that he can turn things around. My leagues are are exactly the same. I feel like in my leagues, even in leagues where we use OBP in place of batting average, it seems as though like the people who are in first, second have basically already got that category sewn up. Like there's oh, yeah. no way that anyone else can catch up. You get right. You've got those couple of teams that are somehow performing way above everyone else. Well, they got and then like you've got Tatis, Blackman, yeah, and, Car- exactly. and uh, yeah, Mike right. Yastrzemski somehow. And it's like, okay, you got all the good ones. We all have the trash. <laughs> we have literally uh, the rest of the league here. Um, a couple of uh, Rangers that you threw on this trade candidate list uh, it, it intrigued me uh, for fantasy purposes and for real life purposes alike. Shinsu Chu and Mike Miner. Let's start with Shinsu Chu. Obviously deal with some nagging injuries this year. Long been one of my favorite players. Uh, One of the most underrated players, I think, of his era. The way that he's been able to keep on chugging along and being a productive hitter while also, you know, playing some outfield and now transitioning a little bit more to DH um, has just been remarkable into his late 30s. Um, We're starting to see that injury catch up with him a little bit this season, but he's still a guy who went healthy. I believe in uh, just because the batted ball skills and the on base skills really haven't abandoned him at this point. And it gets to, you know, sort of a, you know, not David or he's not David Ortiz, but people kept waiting for the other shoe to drop on David Ortiz. And it's like, if he's still doing it at 37, 38, he's probably going to be able to do it until he hangs it up. That's how I feel about Shinsu Chu. I would like to see him get moved to a team with maybe a little bit better offensive environment. Um, Where's your read on Chu as we head into the final month of this MLB season? Completely agree with you on everything right down to the fact that he's been one of my favorites uh, of this era. Just a fun player to watch, and I've really liked him. You know, he's an OBP guy. 
Um, you know, his batting average isn't bad, but his OBP is always like a hundred points clear of his batting average. So he always puts up those nice numbers. Even this year, he is struggling a little bit with his offensive production. Uh, choose at 216, 306, 365. But you see, even there, 90 point split between the average and OBP because he's still taking his walks. If you really look into his profile, there is not a lot different than the guy who put up a 117 WRC plus in, in 2018 and a 112 last year, which is pretty good. You know, it's solidly above league average. Um, and the only thing I'm really seeing is the BABIP. And I'm always very careful to not use BABIP as like a luckometer. In fact, I, I really hate when people do that. They just look at it and say, oh, he's been too lucky or he's been unlucky and they don't look at, at, at the underneath. I look at his 260 and I do think there's been some bad luck for Shinsu Chu. Now, part of it, as you mentioned, nagging injuries, the fact that he is definitely slowing down a bit at age 37. And, and when you start to lose speed, your BABIPs are, are going to tend to be a bit lower because of that. I mean, at the extreme end, we're talking about guys like Justin Smoke and Miguel Cabrera that even when they do hit the ball, well, uh, uh, Albert Pujols is another one. They can have some hard hit numbers that look enticing at times. And you're like, well, their BABIP will come up. It's like, eh, maybe not because they turn doubles into singles. You know, they, they go the other way uh, uh, as far as that swings. But I'm looking at Shinsu Chu, and I don't see his sprint speed completely falling apart. It is down. Again, it, it, we're, we're definitely seeing some factors there. But I think that 260 should be up. And I don't think it necessarily is going to go to the 330 that we've seen the last two years. But I think it belongs right at that league average area of 300. I think he's an interesting buy low. And I mentioned in the piece that if this was a six-month season, I would definitely be buying Chu all over the place, expecting him to regress back to this level that we've gotten used to. I wouldn't necessarily be as aggressive about it in this season, just because the season can run out before things turn around for guys. I mean, we're only going to have two months. And, you know, think about in May, at the end of May, how many guys you'd be willing to buy low on because things are going to turn around for them. Like I said, time's just going to run out on some guys. But I think Chu is another candidate for Cleveland. Uh, they could They could get him back. I think Miami, who's actually in it, and they should maybe look to add a piece or two. And he's a rental. That that big mega deal that Chu had, this is the last year of it, so that wouldn't be cost prohibitive for Miami. Maybe Cincinnati, another team that he's been on before, could look at him. Milwaukee. I think maybe even Houston might be interested with Alvarez being down for the year. And they've had to really tap into their depth. I think a hitter like Shinsu Chu kind of fits what Houston does quite well, and they might be interested in him as a mostly DH, sometimes going into the outfield. Cal Tucker has certainly emerged, but um, Michael Brantley's holding the DH, but Josh Reddick still doesn't really need to be playing every single day. So I think a team needs to go out there and get Chu, one of these contending teams, and put him on their roster because he's absolutely doing enough out there that, that you can believe that he's going to turn around these early season woes. Yeah, finally made his first all-star team. Would love to see him get a nice playoff run before he hangs him up, which has to be coming pretty soon at age 37. Mike Miner has really fallen off this year, 6.75 ERA, 1.4 whip. But uh, I, I think teams will still be interested in him. Every time we talk about a pitcher, I feel like we're duty-bound to mention Atlanta because obviously yes. they're going to be interested in every single pitcher that's and on the market. And they know him very well, yeah, of course. Too, right, so. exactly. So, what, so what, what's up with the, what, what have you seen with Mike Miner this year? Is it just... I mean, are we talking small sample size woes? Could a, a trade change the scenery, a new team environment, help him out a little bit? Uh, should teams be interested in him? Should fantasy owners be interested in him? 
It depends really what's underneath this uh, two-point velo drop. He's down from 92.6 to 90.5, and obviously a velo drop uh, of that of that level can often be indicative of an injury. Of course, he's still pitching every fifth day, though, so I think it's reasonable to believe that he's not necessarily hurt unless he is kind of like hiding something or if it's more of a nagging thing than something that incapacitates him. But he has a 2.2 homer per nine uh, which is which is just horrific. I mean, he's been a home run guy uh, throughout most of his career, really. He's, he's a 1.2 uh, homer per nine career with 1.3 and 1.4 the last two years, but 2.2 is, is aggressive. Like, that's really, really bad. His core skills, though, the strikeout and walk ratio are right in line with what he's done the last two years. So you're looking at the velo and the home run rate, and you're thinking, well, there might be a fix here. And I don't know if there's a team out there that thinks, hey, we see this, and again, Atlanta of all teams knows him very well. Maybe they see some things that they can fix. If it's mechanical that has his VLO down, then that would make him a very interesting buy low. There's also a case, though, that he doesn't necessarily need to get the VLO back to be good. It's not like he's been bad in every one of his starts. Two of his four, two of his six have been pretty good and shown glimpses of the Mike Miner that we're used to. So I think if the if the medicals check out. A lot of teams should be interested. Atlanta, I did put number one. I think the White Sox could be kind of interested. They've got a good rotation right now, but you ne- you never want to just have like six guys and be like, okay, we're, we're fine because we have a backup and our main five. The second that you start to think like six pitchers is enough, two or three get hurt and you're left scraping. Uh, Houston, talk about them tapping into their depth hitting-wise. They've had two pitching-wise as well. And we know what they're able to do with pitchers. It'd be really interesting to see if they had, had something in store for Miner and all of a sudden he went back to not only what he did last year, but maybe even a level better. I think Oakland could be interested. They like to get guys that are on the cheap, and he's a rental as well. And then Toronto, they just got Taiwan Walker, which I thought was a great move. I don't think they're necessarily done, though. They could maybe look into getting yet a second pitcher via the trade market, and Miner could be that guy. As far as buying him low in fantasy, I want to buy really low. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm really taking bottom of the barrel pricing here, or else I'm not really looking to do it, mainly because one b- bad outing right now can really decimate you. And he has given up five earned in three of his six starts for Mike Miner, and that's a that's a scary proposition to take on. So I'm asking, you know, if, I, if I'm going in there, I'm not giving a huge offer. And I understand if the fantasy manager in question doesn't want to move him for that, but I have to get bottom barrel pricing on Mike Miner, or else I'm going to let the uh, the current fantasy manager go ahead and take that plunge the rest of the year. All right, well, let's hit on another pitcher here. How about Dylan Bundy? Has uh, had that breakout season we've been waiting for forever uh, with the Angels. If you are the Dylan Bundy manager, you are feeling very, very good about him. We know it's going to be the same group of teams that are interested in mm-hmm. in, in minor, right? Atlanta, the White Sox, uh, maybe Houston, maybe Toronto still, right? Oh, these teams are still going to be chasing these guys. If they want pitching, they want pitching, period. If you're If you have Dylan Bundy, is there any of those landing spots where you're crossing your fingers and saying, you know, please not this team, please not this team, please not this team? Maybe Toronto, uh, because of because of the Buffalo Park and and the the beast itself, uh, not just the AL beast, but but the NL beast as well. Like you know that yeah. whole that whole mega division up and down. You don't really get a rollover ball club anywhere as far as offense goes. Um, you know the 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 perceived worst team 
was the the Orioles, and they're not playing too terribly. And the thing that's driving them is their offense. So right. you, you don't even you don't even really want to take a look at them. Boston, they're pretty bad, but again, you don't really want to face that <laughs> offense. So I think I think going out to the East would be the one place I don't really want Bundy to go back to. We know we know that he's had troubles out there with his with the home run ball and everything. I think all the other teams listed there between Atlanta, Chicago, Houston, and Oakland, I'm fine with any of them. Um, because I love what Bundy's done this year, really shifting his pitch mix, dialing down the fastball a ton from 50% to 39% and leaning deep into his slider usage, adding some change-ups, adding a few more curveballs here and there, just really getting into a secondary arsenal. The dividends have been huge for him, and I, I think he could really thrive with one of these playoff contending teams. And here's the thing, with, as far as uh, the Angels' incentive to trade him, even if they want to keep him long-term, they could just sign him in the offseason. And right. given that they kind of gave a, a quantity over quality poo-poo platter, as some people like to call it, for, for Bundy, they can get more than they gave. So they could take a net win on the deal. And then if they really love him, if they've really built a rapport with him in this short time here, sign him back to like a four-year deal in the offseason because they still absolutely need pitching. So I think they could really play this brilliantly here uh, if they're out in the market looking to do it. So because they could do something brilliant, uh, it definitely won't happen because they're the Angels. <laughs> right? That's what we've come to expect from this team. I got to say, the just pure baseball fan in me would love to see him end up with the White Sox. I think that's a really interesting match. It's a team I would love to see go for it. We know Rick Hahn uh, is going to be pretty aggressive in these next mm -hmm. few days uh, leading up to the deadline in the White Sox. Even though their pitching has been good to this point, could definitely use another arm. Would love to see him there. And hey, if I had him in fantasy, would love to see him end up in the Central for the rest of the season uh, as well. So that's a great spot for him. How about his teammate, Tommy LaStella? Uh, another guy who I think is uh, going to be, the Angels are going to be taking some calls on this weekend. Uh, few teams that could definitely use him that you list here, Yankees, Twins, A's, the Cubs perhaps uh, have been having some talks about adding uh, some left-handed pop to their lineup. Any of those teams jump out at you as the best clearly for his fantasy value? You know, I think it'd be really interesting. I'd love to see him get in that Minnesota lineup, and I, I do think there is a little bit of an opening there. I, I was a big fan of Luis Arise coming into the season. Uh, you know, he hasn't really gone off for them though he's starting to turn it around a little bit but I think that that would be a position that he could definitely take and that you know he can bounce around a little bit Listella can so it's not even that he would necessarily have to take the, the second base job just completely and Arise has gotten his average up to 284 so he's kind of back on track a bit but the power is really rough there it's an 037 ISO because he has a 321 slug and even as somebody who liked him coming into the year I never thought it was going to be power based at all uh, I just kind of thought maybe he would hit well over 300 and make himself a fantasy asset that way. But he's going to be kind of bland as an empty batting average at 284. So I think anyway, anytime you get in the Minnesota lineup, that's an interesting. I would say the Yankees, um, especially because of, of that ballpark and everything, my only concern is that I think they would get him and he wouldn't necessarily be an everyday player the rest of the year because as they would start to get their pieces back, uh, particularly LeMahieu and Torres, I think that would start to cut into his his time. And so mm -hmm. that would kind of be the bummer there. Uh, you know, we know that Judge unfortunately gets hurt with a lot of consistency there. So second and uh, second's open right now. Tyro Estrada is playing there. So I feel like LaStella could get everyday burn there. Then maybe when 
uh, LeMahieu gets back or Torres gets whoever gets back first, and he has to maybe not play second quite as much, maybe DH becomes an option for him if there's a long-term injury for Judge. So if Judge had to go back on the IL, I think the Yankees would jump to the top of my interest list. Otherwise, I think Minnesota or Oakland. You know, they they had three guys. When they traded for Kemp this year, uh, Tony Kemp in the offseason, I was kind of bummed because I wanted one of Franklin Barreto or Jorge Mateo to get that second base job and get an opportunity to roll with it. They clearly don't trust those two. In fact, they moved Mateo out to San Diego. So they that showed that they didn't really have any interest in him. And then Barreto, they gave 10 plate appearances. Uh, he went 0 for 10 and they're like, nah, you still stink. And he struck out seven <laughs> times, by the way. And that is a tiny sample, but he had a 42% career strikeout rate over 219 plate appearances. So they kind of know what they're getting. They have mm-hmm. given up. They're like, Barreto's not the answer. But Tony Kemp isn't either. And I think Lestella would fit in that lineup very nicely, and he would play every day with them. And his power has shown to be real. And that was one thing I really liked about Lestella coming into this year. I believed in the power gains from last year, and I love a guy who develops this power while not striking out and being able to take his walks. You put him in that solid Oakland lineup, I think he could bat uh, up at two against lefties, or excuse me, against righties, and then maybe down in the seven, eight range against lefties. I think that would definitely work. And that, if you went to Oakland, I'd feel more secure about his time. So even though New York and Minnesota have better lineups overall, probably, give me Oakland as the the rock-solid answer because I don't think his playing time gets touched there at any point. I think he would, Lestella would get in there and they would kind of set it and forget it outside of maybe the occasional sit against a lefty to get mm-hmm. Chad Pinder in there. Yeah, he was the guy who I was a little bit concerned about coming into this season, mostly because of his history with Joe Madden in Chicago, as well as he hit for the Cubs when he got opportunities, Madden never really showed any interest in making him into an everyday player when they were uh, when they were both in Chicago. So I was a little concerned about that history. Obviously, that thought proved to be ill-founded, and he has uh, proven that that power is a real piece. And uh, you left the Cubs out. I do agree. I think they're probably the worst landing spot, even if they make a move for him. Hard to see him being an everyday player uh, in the Cubs lineup. I just don't think it would happen. They like what they've gotten out of Kipnis against righties. They're still pretty committed to Nico Horner getting a, a lot of run at exactly. second base. So I, I think it would be more of a – he would go back to being that uh, that complimentary player, that uh, bit player that he was for the Cubs when he was with the team previously. Uh, let's move over to a closer. Trevor Rosenthal, back in our lives. What a great story to see him you know, not only back and pitching well, but pitching – excellently dominating hitters. It has been so much fun, right? We love to see these success stories, guys who get dogged by injuries and come back and do it. I feel like if I had to bet on one player for sure being traded between the moment you and I are recording this 9.30 a.m. Central Time and Monday, it's him. And I feel like no matter where it ends up being, it's going to be something that good for him and good for the team that acquires him, but probably going to, if not completely submarine his fantasy value, cut it in a huge way. I couldn't agree more, uh, again, with everything you've said there. I've I've been a Rosenthal fan his whole career, and i got to be honest, Michael, I was really hoping that the Tigers were going to get this iteration of Rosenthal last year. I liked when they picked him up coming off the TJ year, but last year was his first year back from the TJ, so he was kind of a mess. His velo was back with, with both the Nats and Tigers, but he couldn't really get going, and, you know, I just, I wish they would have would have kind of hung on to him though and said let's get him another year and see if he can get all the way back in that second year well KC scooped in and they did get uh the, like a prime Trevor Rosenthal back in the saddle again looking great 
And you're talking about the fantasy value. Yeah, it really is going to go down. My number one team here is Tampa Bay because they're dropping like flies here. It seems every day turns up. They have a new guy who's injured. They're already squirrely with saves. They don't care about our fantasy teams. They manage their bullpen. Whoever's the best guy for the job at that inning that Kevin Cash feels is the right button to push, he pushes it, which my baseball brain completely agrees with. I think it's a brilliant way. I love the way they run it from that standpoint. My fantasy brain desperately hates them for it <laughs> because they won't just put Nick Anderson, who's now also on the IL, they won't just put him in the in the uh, closers role and let him get like 20 saves. Um, but I, I, like I said, I get it. But now all of a sudden, they're starting to be a bit decimated. And Trevor Rosenthal is a free agent after this year. He did not get a huge contract. He would not cost them a lot. I think that'd be a great fit. We know Philly went out and got Brandon Workman. They're not done, though. One guy, Brandon Workman, does not fix what they're, what ails them. They could absolutely use another piece. San Diego has started to feel a few bumps and bruises, particularly uh, Kirby Yates. And then Drew Pomeranz, they're filling. It looked like they weren't going to miss a beat as far as the closers role goes. And then Drew Pomeranz gets hurt, which has unfortunately been something that has happened to him throughout his career. So all of a sudden, they're down their, their one and two guys. So Rosenthal would fit really well out there. That would be the one spot where I think his value would not be completely torpedoed because they could put him in the closers role and just say, this is your job. Here you go. And Emilio Pagan comes back into the fireman setup role. And then Toronto and Washington as well. Washington has to decide which way they're going right now. Uh, I know they're kind of on the cusp. I don't think that they want to give up. So I did list them as a candidate for some players. Uh, but yeah, I think Toronto, uh, Tampa Bay, Philly, and San Diego are the top three there. And I, I have them ranked like that. That's just for the baseball value. For the fantasy, I think we would want to go San Diego, Philly, Tampa Bay. So completely reverse the three for our fantasy purposes. But either way, don't cut Rosenthal. He's still going to get saves. He just might not get every save. But he's striking out guys at a huge 38% clip, best of his career. And his ratios are strong. So he's going to still deliver fantasy value, even if he's not getting every save in his new home. And I agree with you. If they don't trade him, they're insane. The Royals, like... (laughs) They, yeah. they better. They're, again, same as the Bundy thing. Even if they love him, they've developed a rapport with him. Mike Matheny, his former manager, is now his current manager. Bring him back in the offseason. You must trade him at this peak, though, especially in case it, it 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 doesn't hold. You know, if they just ride it out through the rest of the year and then he doesn't do well uh, and they can never trade him, you got to trade him now and then just bring him back in the offseason if you love him that much. Absolutely. An important point you made there at the end. My dog agrees. You can hear him barking that he loves this point too, that he, uh, that Trevor Rosenthal, even without every single save opportunity for team X, wherever he is with the way he's striking guys out with where his ratios are, he's still going to give you fantasy value. Even if he's only getting one out of every two, one out of every three save opportunities with the way he's missing bats, definitely someone who you're going to want on your team, regardless of role. Uh, Any other closers out there that you have your eye on that you're looking at a little bit warily hoping from a fantasy perspective, please don't let this guy get traded because right now he's delivering me saves. If he's not delivering me saves, he's not going to be delivering me a whole lot else. You know, there, there aren't a lot because the thing of it is the main thing is that a lot of teams are, are in uh, some form of, of, of contention. So that that's a that's a big part mm-hmm. of it is that uh, you know not too many teams that have and, and well hang on I get my words twisted here the bad teams don't have closers right. so you know the, and that's part of it too usually the very worst teams they don't have a great bullpen and that's part of why they're the very worst teams every team that has kind of a set 
closer, which is not that many, by the way, that have set it and forget it, guys. But they're among the best teams. So I don't think we would see any of those guys uh, get moved and kind of lose their their set gig. You know, even Archie Bradley, who's on Arizona, and they've they've completely melted down to the point where they need to start considering making moves themselves. I feel like if they traded Archie Bradley, though, it would be to somebody that would want to make him the closer. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, again, Tampa Bay, if they trade for any reliever, they're going to be they're going to be squirrely with it. But otherwise, I think a lot of teams that would be interested in paying up for Archie Bradley would do so with the intention of putting him into the closer. I think that's the worst team outside of KC with Rosenthal that has the best closer. And and I would rank Rosenthal ahead of Bradley, but those are the only two of the crummy teams that have like a set guy that's delivering massive fantasy value right now. So no, I don't think anybody else has to worry if you kind of have some of those, uh, some of those mediocre closers on the poor teams uh, that you're going to lose your guy there. All right, we've got uh, to move on from the trade deadline here for a second. A few other players I want to ask you about before we wrap things up here. We will get to that right after this. All right, Paul, let's move on from the trade deadline here. You've got a regular feature over at Fangraphs that you call 10 Tidbits. It's a great read every week. Definitely check that out. Now, I know this player I'm about to ask you out is a uh, this is a week old. So you know, maybe everything you wrote last week doesn't hold perfectly. But in your last one, one guy who jumped out at me uh, was Robbie Grossman, still pretty widely available in fantasy leagues. Uh, what has he done to this point of the season that has you interested in him? You know, what's been really interesting about Robbie Grossman is throughout his career, he's been a guy that you look and you kind of see the strikeout and walk rates and you're like, this guy's pretty good. Like he, or he should be like, he's got a good foundation. We've learned in the sabermetric era to kind of look at strikeouts and walks first and foremost, and, and kind of, uh, you know, look for guys who can, who can take their walks. I think some of that was born of being too passive though. A walk rate born of just kind of sitting up there looking to take a walk which isn't a great thing because you're not going to get, you're going to give, give up pitches that you could hit. Well, he's dialed it up this year uh, of swinging in hitting hitter counts. And that has really driven his results. He's making contact at a 93% clip in those counts. And the, and the results have been insane. 1484 OPS at the time of writing that, which was on August 20th in hitters counts, well above league average even counts as well. So when he gets the the count leverage, he's finally attacking Robbie Grossman is, and it's really delivered big with home runs and he's running a little bit too. Uh, So he's been kind of one of these combo guys. We've seen a bunch of these guys pop up, Robbie Grossman, Dylan Moore before he got hurt, Austin Slater, a couple others that are escaping me right now, but these guys that are doing power and speed, he has four homers and four steals for Grossman, a 427 OBP, and he's batting second for the A's regularly. He is being platooned a bit, but he's on the strong side of the platoon, so that definitely works for us fantasy-wise, and that's why he has 12 runs scored, 15 ribbies. So I think his finally dialing up how aggressive he is in counts in his favor is what's driving Robbie Grossman's breakthrough here at age 30, and I think there's some viability to it. I'm going to be interested to see how he finishes over this final month, but then I'm going to take a close look at him next year coming in. He'll be 31. He's kind of one of these these late bloomers here with this season. But I really want to see what he can do over a full six-month season 
if this is indeed real and he keeps it up next year. Uh, but as far as the rest of this season goes, I'd pick him up and I'd ride this out. I don't see it falling apart. He'll probably regress some a bit off the 167 WRC plus. Like that's pretty gaudy. But I don't see I don't see a meltdown here. If anything, I see a little bit of tapering off, but still solid. And he'll continue to run too. And anytime you're getting power and speed, that's just I mean that's massive. You you can't you can't be happy enough about that. You know. Yeah, absolutely. I love seeing guys uh, back off of the passivity after they have built it up over a few years. Uh, Eno and I were just talking about someone on that Thursday episode of Rates and Barrels, and off the top of my head, I can't remember who it was, but that same thing, a guy who had been previously too passive in plus counts who had you know started to put it back. And the person who always comes to mind for me, the poster child for this uh, recently, is Freddie Freeman, right? who did it yes. a few years ago, who suddenly became one of the most aggressive was it uh, hitters on pitches in the zone. Talking about? I think it was. I think it was Yastrzemski. Yeah, I think I, we I, definitely I, talked about him on that episode. I listened yeah, to the but, first uh, 15 minutes, and then I, uh, as I was as I was going to sleep, you guys you guys put me to sleep last night, which I know is a creepy <laughs> thing to say, and I'm sorry. But, yeah, I was listening to it, so I've only heard the first 15. I'll listen to the rest yeah. after that. I think it was in the Yastrzemski convo because yeah, then you did right. bring up Freeman about how yeah. he dialed up his aggressiveness. Yeah, and it's something that uh, I think a lot of players, especially once you establish that you have a hold of the strike zone, Let's get more aggressive. I wanted to see it out of Yuan Moncada this season, a guy who yep. was, you know, pretty passive on balls in the zone last year. Um, and no, you know, two obviously... years ago, and then jumped right. Yeah, was yeah. it last yeah. year when he he did it? Yeah, but the he year last before... year he took a jump, but it felt like there was even more room for him to take another jump this season. I, I, yeah, I I mean, anytime that like I said, you're going up trying to take a walk, it's probably not the right thing. Like we talk about right. this with like um like a Tim Anderson. You know, if he took more walks, he'd be this. Uh, I don't know that that's yeah. true. Walks are not magic. They don't inherently <laughs> make you better no matter what. And, yeah, I know we look at his profile, Tim Anderson's, and we say 22 to 25% strikeouts with a 5% walk. That's not ideal. But everything else around it the, these mm-hmm. last two years has been brilliant. So let's leave well enough alone. I don't think walks inherently do anything positive for Tim Anderson because he's not striking out too much. The only thing I worry about with with Anderson, I know that's not who we're talking about, but just since I brought him up, is that he's got a 400 BABIP now again. That's the one thing we thought would not hold. We're like, okay, he might be good. You know, he's a good player. He did some good things last year. He led the league in batting average, but he's definitely going to give back on that 400 BABIP. And he literally hasn't given back on it at all. He has a dead 400 BABIP again. That's insane. But I don't think walks would magically do anything for him. So there is that line of like, don't don't just think that that a guy needs a walk rate that will magically fix him. You know, another guy who turned up his aggressiveness um, and it, and it bred results was Aaron Hicks. I think he used to have passive walk rates where he was going up there looking to just kind of take that walk and and show, hey, I can get on base. It's like, yeah, but you don't do anything around it. And then he finally had that breakthrough there in uh, 2017 uh, with the Yankees, his second season with them, and then carried it over to 18. And even was pretty decent for a few bouts here and there last year. Injuries just have ravaged him again this year as well. But I think he finally dialed up and realized, I have to attack when I can. Don't let that pitch go right down the middle in, in a 0-1 or 1-0 count just to get deeper into a count for the sake of getting deeper into account. So it's definitely mm-hmm. something that a lot of players struggle with. Yeah, it is, especially when you're hitting. I mean, guys who are coming up now have had that 
sabermetric mentality preached into them probably, mm-hmm. you know, for, for years. So uh, it's something that I think uh, some guys need coached out of them or just, you know, experienced out of them. They get, you know, more comfortable at the major league level and they start to transition out of that. So definitely like seeing that from anyone, Robbie Grossman, someone who is doing it here. Um, someone else who you mentioned in that tidbits uh, column, not quite as widely available as Robbie Grossman, but it's Brandon Lau. And my question for you here with him is, you know, as I said, Eno and I were talking by high candidates. I think that's, that's sort of like the, uh, that's sort of like the fantasy version of not being too passive, right? It's just Buy low, sell yes. high, forget about it. It's too, it's, we're just set in these ways. But I think there are guys who sometimes we do want to believe in and buy high on, knowing that you know maybe I'm paying a little bit too much for him. Maybe I'm paying for 100% when he's really only going to be 90% of this the rest of the season. But with what we've seen from Lau, is this someone who you would be comfortable buying high? Million percent. Uh, I was very big on him coming into the season uh, as somebody that – you know, I thought was going too cheap. I actually did this one piece where I said, you know, six bargain buys using projections. And I kind of had a guy with a higher ADP uh, and his steamer. Proje- I, I, I can't remember if I used, I think I used the bat X and I said, here's his bat X projection. And he's going at this ADP. Here's another guy going rounds later who has a similar projection. Why not just buy this guy? You know, it's, it's that fantasy thing we do a lot. Why buy, you know, it's almost like buy the generic mm-hmm. version. Don't buy the name brand. Keston Hero was the name brand at ADP 37. Brandon Lau was the generic at 191. And so I loved Lau. Got him on a couple ball clubs. It's paying dividends. And the one thing I like, and I didn't even fully see this coming down to this level. I did believe that he could cut his strikeout rate uh, from the 35% that we saw last year. Because he didn't really show somebody who was locked into striking out that much. Well, he cut it all the way down to 23%, which when you're hitting for this kind of power, I'll take 23% all day. I have zero mm-hmm. problems with that. I'll take upwards of 27, 28%. Once your power gets into that kind of 250 ISO or better, you can live in 27, 28 range. So he even had wiggle room there. But no, I believe in everything that we're seeing out of Brandon Lau. I think he's legit. He's going to be 26 next year on a quality team. I'm definitely buying in here. We haven't seen him run at all, and he was 5 for 5 on the basis last year, so that was not going to be a huge part of his game because it was in 82 games, but you can't just do the double ex- uh, extrapolation right. there and be like, well, he's a he's a 34-10 guy. I know it's easy <laughs> to do that, but it, it doesn't work that way. We all know that. Uh, I think over the course of a full season, he's probably more of a 7-10 uh, to 10 guy in some range there. But if it's coming with 30 homers, I don't really care if it's zero steals. Uh, because the average is strong and the counting categories will be strong too. So I really like what Brandon Lau has done. I would totally buy in on him 100%. All right, Paul, we're getting close to having to wrap things up here. And we are uh, we like to think of ourselves as a very friendly show here on the Athletic Fantasy Baseball Podcast. There are two more players who I have listed as guys who I wanted to ask you about. I'm just going to name them, and you take one and run with them, knowing that we're not going to be able to get to the other one. So choose wisely here. Okay. Two guys who you've okay. uh, written about recently, Jake Cronenworth, Dylan Carlson. Ooh, I'm taking Jake Cronenworth. I love okay. Ray Cronenworth. <laughs> this guy is so fun. I, I will claim I will not claim that I knew about him coming into the year at all. He got was he was part of that trade. I saw the name. I kind of knew a little bit about him from there. Still didn't care about him though because I was like, where's he going to play? Then that gastrointestinal issue for Eric Hosmer gave him an opportunity to play for about a week. He started raking. Then he started to take second base opportunity. I added him in three different leagues. I've been super keyed in on him. 
I love this guy. I think he's the next Ben Zobrist. They, they don't switch. He doesn't switch hit like him. But in terms of the overall value, I think this is a late breakout that we're going to see deliver major dividends the rest of this year and beyond. I would absolutely buy high on him. I think the next few years we're going to see Jake Cronenworth be a four to five win type player. He might not have that one peak season that Zobrist had when he was worth like nine wins or whatever. Mm-hmm. But I think we're going to see a star turn here. I fully believe in Jake Cronenworth. So you're feeling good about him as a rest-of-season mainstay? Absolutely. I, I think at worst he plays second base the rest of the year. Um, and then they can still play Profar, even though they probably shouldn't because of how poorly he's been playing. But they can play him in the outfield because Tommy Pham got hurt. But even if outfield kind of uh, if they found an outfielder that they wanted to play instead, I think Profar has to be the odd man out. Cronenworth should have the second base job. He can bounce around, but I think he should be the everyday second baseman right now. All right, I lied. I'm going to ask you about Dylan Carlson anyway. Okay. Um, we know what the future is. The future looks like this could be a, yes. a, you know, a really, really special, great player. But what about the rest of this season? Where do you think he fits into the fantasy picture for the remainder of 2020? I think he's he's got – Dylan Carlson has viability in not – I don't think every format you have to hold him right now. Uh, Justin and I say this stuff – say this thing on the sleeper in the bus of say – he needs to be on a roster. He doesn't necessarily need to be on your roster. And that that's <laughs> like, like that. he just might not fit for you. Maybe you can't afford to carry him and wait for his offense to turn around. Maybe your outfield is too good and you need you need a bench infielder or something to that effect in like a 10-team mixed league or something like that. So I do think Carlson is an all-formats player. He just might not be a perfect fit for you in the 10 or 12. But in 15, NL only anybody should be holding him. He is definitely universal there. I think he's going to turn it around a bit when you're kind of watching him play. You've seen him take some professional at-bats. I don't know if you guys have covered this on the show. He is seeing the fewest fastballs in the league. And the amount of respect that that is for a rookie is, like, unheard of. I mean, it's, it's unbelievable. You know, Juan Soto didn't get treated like this. Of course, when he came up, he wasn't he was a heralded prospect, but we didn't know he was going to become a god like this. <laughs> but yeah, they're saying, hey, Rook, uh, we're afraid of you hitting fastballs. So we're only going to give you uh, off speed stuff. He's seen fastballs at a 38 percent rate. Now, I wonder if he can turn it around on on the pitchers and force them into bringing some fastballs in the zone. Or if he can dial up the walk rate a bit and say, you know what, if you're going to do this, then I'll just take my walks. And, and get my free passes until you're going to give me something. I think something will turn at some point for him this season. So I want to have Dylan. I don't want him sitting out there on the waiver wire if I can help it. Again, sometimes in those shower leagues, you just can't do it. Like ESPN, Yahoo, their default is only three reserves. It might not work for you. But every, the deeper formats, you've got to be able to have him. And I think he turns around this year and does some nice stuff in September. I really, really like Dylan Carlson, not only this year, but going forward, which you mentioned he's a huge prospect. But I think this year he's going to have a, a run uh, of being really, really fantasy viable. Yeah, Cardinals still have a lot of games to make up as well, even though they're mm-hmm. going to be plenty of seven-inning games mixed in there. Still a lot of plate appearances coming for every Cardinals regular. Uh, Paul, tell the listeners where they can regularly find your work. They can find me on Twitter at Sporer. That's S-P-O-R-E-R. Uh, I kind of put everything out there. I stream on Twitch at Spore as well, twitch.tv slash Spore. Uh, Fangraphs, you got me as the, the editor of the the Rotograph side of things. Sleeper in the bust out three, four times a week. 
And uh, yeah, you know, baseball all the time. If you love talking baseball, come out to the Twitch stream. Even if you don't play MLB the show, we're always talking baseball, having a great time out there. Yeah, that is beautiful uh, right there. Paul, thanks so much for joining us today. Michael, thank you for having me on. You got it. That's Paul Sporer. Of course, check him out everywhere where he just said. This show will be back with you on Sunday for the waiver episode this week. Again, DVR still on vacation, so that will be me and El Melchior. You can still get 40% off an annual subscription to The Athletic if you go to theathletic.com slash podcast For Paul Sporer, I am Michael Beller. We will be back with you on Sunday. Until then, have a great weekend.